welcome to Duck Blind. I'm Jill Schroeder, and this is our podcast from Great Duck Gallery here in Austin, Texas. Today I'll be chatting with local artist Sean Smith. His exhibition, Omatidium, runs through April 16th. Hey Sean, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So you're originally from Texas, growing up in, da- in the Dallas area, and you received your MFA from the California College of the Arts in San Francisco in 2005. Yes. And then you moved back to Texas, the Austin area, in 2007. I remember seeing your work at D. Berman Gallery back in 2010, and it was pretty awesome, I thought. Thank you. <laughs> How was it transitioning to a new art scene um, way back then? It was kind of difficult at first. I think part of it is because I didn't go to UT. So there was kind of already this like established, you know, groups of friends and, sure. and, uh, collectives and what have you. And I think it was a, a slow thing to kind of chip away at and make friends. Um, I think most of the friends I probably made were, were also people that had not gone to UT. Sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think getting to show it at D Berman, I think it really helped me to kind of, in, like get to know the scene a little bit more and get to know people. Yeah. I mean, I, I felt like that was like the gem gallery. So it's yeah, pretty yeah, cool. I was, that I was super happy to be showing there. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody bet. there was so awesome. So, um, so you're mostly known for life-size animals, wood sculptures that are pixelated. Yeah. Um, for this show, you're kind of going in. Well, I wouldn't say it's a different direction. But the materials are quite different. Mm-hmm. Um, there's stained glass, there's collage, there's 3D printing. Can you tell me how the idea for the show came up and then why you chose the materials that you're using? The show kind of came about from, actually from a lot of different different sources. I didn't want to just like, I don't want to say default, but I guess that works for this, but just like go to a default of like, okay, Here's the idea, and here's what I have, how I'm going to do it. And I wanted to just completely open it up to being whatever the idea really wants to be. And um, a lot of it initially came from a lot of different readings. And uh, one of the first things that I read was uh, was a New York Times article called The Insect Apocalypse is Here, which is kind of daunting. But um, it was by Brooke Jarvis. But um, it was an interesting article talking about the about – this uh, German scientist who would go out and record sounds of insects and been doing it for, I think, a couple of decades, if I remember correctly. And he would noticed that the sounds were getting quieter and quieter and quieter. Oh, wow. And so that became a way of kind of predicting the strength of the whole insect kingdom that's making, making sounds. And I thought that was kind of interesting because I, for me growing up, I'd always heard that um, – that when because I grew up in the eighties, um, there would be you know in the Cold War, and if there was the the nuclear war, uh, the only thing that would survive would be the, the cockroaches and right. I, I, yeah, I don't something else. And they always had this sort of feeling of just being like like ubiquitously bulletproof mm-hmm. always. And then mm-hmm. to hear that that the insect population is is falling off was just kind of for me was like really just like wow. Unfortunately, I don't think that actually pertains to the cockroaches. I don't think they're going anywhere, but that's a whole whole other, that's a whole other thing. Um, so it kind of came from, from that. Um, and I was also trying to think about my own sort of feeling about insects. And, you know, I, I realize that insects are not, they're not sexy and they're not, you know, people have this super ick factor and Mm -hmm. and I'm not, um, immune to that. I don't want to pretend that I am. But I like I came to this from um, I used to have these these night terrors of wasps, mm. and uh, I would flail around and I would think there's a wasp on me, 
And it comes, I think it comes from the story when I was a little kid, I was playing hide and go seek with my friends and I hid in this bush and I heard this kind of buzz sound and I looked up and there's a hornet nest right in front oh of my, my face. And I, I got, I don't know, 17, 18 hornet stings all over me. Oh gosh. And it, it really polarized me towards wasps. Sure. And interestingly enough, moving back to Texas after being in California, I would, I started to see the paper wasps and around and, and I started to, really be fascinated by their nest structures and, and these types of things. And um, I started reading about them more and more. And that's around this, the time and I was kind of be, becoming super interested in wasps. Um, I had read this article where wasps use facial recognition to identify who's in their little, their little colony on the nest. And I thought that was really interesting. Beyond just thinking that insects just are sort of like eat, reproduce, die. Like there's more complexity going on. Sure. There, which probably talk about more that, that later but um and i think that was about the same time i did the 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 reno piece in the front of the show and sort of having my face in the wasp nest of taking the photograph and, and inserting it into the nest so anyway so these these things were all kind of coming together and informing like this idea for a show like a, like a little kernel and i had at this point i didn't really know how it was going to manifest itself into work um there were other things that were uh, kind of coming into it. Um, I know I'm kind of bouncing around a lot here, but it was a lot of different interesting research things. But there was a um, an, an early Cosmos episode with Carl Sagan. I'm dating myself here. <laughs> it came out in the 70s. And I'd seen it as a kid, and then I saw it again as an adult. And it's a story about the, the Hakey Crab. Hmm. And um, so there was a... There was a young emperor boy, and I think there was an army advancing to come and oust them, oust this young emperor. And the the woman who took care of him, instead of being killed by the soldiers, they both just jumped in the water and committed suicide. A better way to die. So for a long time, there was a superstition around this crab. And uh, if you pulled out a crab, and on the I guess it's the carapace, is that right? On the back of the crab, if it looked like a face. People throw it back because that's the face of the emperor. It's like superstition. So oh, they throw wow. it back. Okay. So what happens is you start through this artificial selection process. You start throwing those back. And the other ones And the other eaten. ones get eaten. So the guy, I think Carl Sagan had a great line. is like, if you look like a human, if you don't look like a human, the humans will eat you. <laughs> In his funny voice. But anyway, for some reason I started thinking about that and I started thinking about artificial selection or selection in general. Um, and... I started thinking about, you know, here in Texas, the monarch butterflies are, are championed and yeah. bees are championed. And there's certain insects that are championed and the rest are like the ick. Yeah. And I was, I was thinking about that, that championing of certain things and damning the rest. And um, I think these things were kind of what came together to start making the show. And um, I started looking at... Uh, Insect architecture, and I think that goes back to the interest in wasp nests, but trying to go beyond that because there's so many different interesting insects that make really interesting nests, like the uh, the leafcutter ants and, mm-hmm. and different different um, uh, different carapace. Uh, oh God, chrysalis. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> that other c word, um, other chrysalis, and just other things, and like like mud daubers, and um, I think there's a, there's one I, I saw that I really liked called I think it was called a bone wasp. Mm. That's, that's a, it's pretty ominous, but <laughs> anyway, um, looking at that and also looking at different interactions between humans and insects where there's this, this one side, there's this championing 
And on the other side, there's annihilation. Yeah. And so it sets up this kind of interesting fulcrum where we're sort of in the middle making decisions mm-hmm. about something else. I looked at some different interesting stats along those lines that insects outweigh us by a factor of 17 on the planet. So basically, I think this might be a few years old, but there's mm. 300 pounds of insects for every pound of human on the planet. <laughs> but yet we're making decisions that are directly affecting them through climate change and habitat destruction and yeah. light pollution and all these different things. Um, so yeah, these are the things that we're, we're kind of informing the show. Yeah, I, I remember having, we've, I guess we've had a number of conversations about insects um, and right. humans. And I remember you saying, um, every bug has a purpose. Right. And, and so because like, you know, in my garden, I'll be like, I don't want this bug because it's interfering with the plant that I <laughs> sure. like. Sure, yeah, I know, I get it. <laughs> but then that, that, um, to, or that phrase you, you gave me like comes up in my head and then I'm like, well, but something's eating that or it's eating something else right. or, you know, there's some beneficial reason for that bug to be here. And how am I to decide? <laughs> you know, like, right, right. <laughs> so it really makes me aware. And I feel like this show kind of m- starts to make people aware of, um, their relationship mm-hmm. with the insect world. I mean, I think mosquitoes are an interesting, um, they're an interesting like, thing to just like use as an example, but like mosquitoes are terrible. Mosquitoes kill <laughs> yes. you know, thousands of, of, of humans a year with things that they carry and, you know, malaria and I think dengue fever, I think, and, um, different things. You know, we can't just eradicate that because there are things that, that eat them special, you know, specifically and things that just, that's like their common, you know, bats eat mosquitoes, but that's not all they eat, but there's also things that just eat mosquitoes. So then you kill that. And then the thing that eats that runs out of food. And it just becomes like this cascade of, of kind of disaster going up the food chain. Right. It's an interesting place to be. It's a, I think that's part of the, for me, that's part of the show because it's not like, you know, everything's great with insects and we got to save every single one of them because you have your own feelings about them. So how do you make those decisions and how do you like, how do you choose what, what stays and what goes? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just started a, a book and I, I wish I had finished it uh, more recently, but I, I just got it. I think it's Rebecca Nesbitt, but it's called tickets for the arc. And <laughs> so far it seems like she's, she's kind of asking these kinds of questions about how do we make these decisions about what we keep and what we get rid of. Mm hmm. Um, but anyway, that's, that's another, yes, yes. We'll have to do an, yeah. amend, uh, an amendment after this. And, uh, right. We'll talk about great. bugs. Yeah. yeah. All, all the time. Yeah. Um, I kind of wanted to get into some of the groupings of the show, um, like into the void or preparing for the void. Excuse me. Um, mm-hmm. do you want to talk about that series and how that came apart? Sure. So, um, there was a radio lab. I love radio lab in the studio mm-hmm. just to have it going in, uh, and uh, it was about this highway of all above us. And there's billions of insects that are just flying around us. And I think the, that number swells more as you get closer to the equator. And also, I think as you get towards the summer months. But there's just billions of, I think it was a couple of million tons of insects just flying around the atmosphere. <laughs> and there was some interesting research that, so I was, I, was re- I was hearing that and I was like, that's fascinating because... Mm-hmm. The idea of <laughs> spiders, even though I know they're, they're arthropods, but they're not technically insects, but, um, flying above people's head and that kind of numbers, I think it would really freak people out. 
<laughs> I don't. I'm not afraid of spiders. But yeah. a couple of years ago, if it had been like that many wasps, I'd have been like, oh no, uh, uh-uh. uh, that would just kind of freak me out a little bit. But I thought it'd be something interesting to mine um, and to play around with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I did some research and I found an article that was, I think it was written in the twenties, but they had this plane with these, these cool little buckets over the wings and they would fly it like a thousand feet and they would come down and they would look around in the back and find the insects in the plane. Okay. And they would say, Oh, here's a this and here's a that. And then they would sort of catalog them. And I think 90% of them actually were alive. Like oh wow! They weren't. They didn't, weren't dead. And I, a lot of them don't actually fly themselves. No, no, they get like yeah. picked up off higher altitudes sure. or different things. And spiders do this cool thing where they they'll they'll spin up a, like a straight like string of web, and they just get whisked away. Wow! And it's it's kind of fascinating. Um, <laughs> I'm putting. I'm, I know someone's going to get mad at me about putting spiders and insects together, but uh, that's what I'm doing. Okay. <laughs> Anyway. It's your show. Yeah. Well, um, I think I read something also that in the same research that uh, I think Darwin going across on the Beagle to the Galapagos was finding weird spiders on the on the ship and was like, this is not a spider from where I'm from. And the ship's been at sea. Like, how did it get here? And the idea is that it's like it's falling it, out of the sky. Wow. Um, hmm. And I think there's also there's been like uh, there were uh, the wrong kind of bees on top of Mount Everest. <laughs> and they just sort of ended up there. Um, I don't think someone brought it with them. I think sure. it you know, dropped yeah. out of the sky. But, but anyway, there was, there was all this, going back to the research from the 20s, this plane would fly at different altitudes and they would look at what was in there. And I think the, there was, at the time, there was like a, there was a t- one single termite they found a few years later when they had, had higher flight and it was like at like 19,000 feet. I mean, it's bananas. Yeah. Um, so that, that kind of in, was informing this, um, and it's kind of quirky and fun, and I wanted to continue on with that. And kind of going back to this idea that I talked about, about championing certain species over others, I was trying to look at, looking at human intervention into trying to save one particular thing instead of like a whole All, group, just right. like one certain thing. And I thought, well, what perfect, you know, of course you would make a high altitude spacesuit for a an insect to survive even though they're already it's funny it's you know it's, it, sure it would are it's already probably going to survive the probability is good yeah but um i wanted to take that and i wanted to play around with it um i'd, I'd also got done a bunch of research and looking back at uh, high altitude suits from like military u.s military like i think it was on like the late 40s all the way up until like current times and how their designs and the earlier ones it was kind of weird. They actually, the humans looked like bugs. Sure. Because they're, that, that form was completely stretched and by materials and, and like the, 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 the men in the photos couldn't stand up because the, they had to be in a certain position. Uh, oh, because wow. The, the suits weren't flexible. They sure. Had these big oversized heads with big lenses and it, it all just kind of came together and became really fun to uh, sit around and design these things for insects. <laughs> So there is a centipede, dragonflies, a water beetle. How did you decide on which spacesuits to make? <laughs> um, I think my initial list was like I had fifty that I just I chose based on. Well, that looks fun. Sure. I think a lot of it had to do with like looking at diversity of shape of body and. Um, just different aspects, like things I would learn about them. Um, and that just kind of helped me to decide. Okay. All right. In terms of the, some of the suits, I actually talked to a pilot friend of mine 
who used to be in the Air Force, and he was talking about he had to, at one point he had to wear, he worn those suits, and he talked about what it does to your body and how it basically, you want to, uh, you want to constrict the, if I remember correctly, you want the blood to continue to flow back to your brain so it doesn't pool in your feet. Nice. And you, well, you black out, right? <laughs> sure, you, yeah. Because you oxygen that and you black out, I guess. And so he talked about that. So I tried to, I tried to work that in to this, even though okay. it's like, it's, it's funny, you know, it's like it's yeah, using yeah. one type of anatomy and a perspective to enforce on something, on, on something else that may not function that way. Sure. But that's a little bit more anthropomorphizing, I guess. And it, it works well, into it as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's what we do. We do do that. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So switching to the architecture, um, can you tell me a little bit about the Invisible Cities um, series, your collage work? So, so here we go again with research again. Um, going back to the beginning, there was a there's this really great uh, video I found that was put out by someone at MIT, and it had to do with um, how insects that have an omatidium kind of see the world. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, it actually is sort of a pixelated perspective oh, of wow. the world and i was like oh man i'm going back in i'm going back to that world sure but i thought it was an interesting way to sort of round back to that world and so i was looking at this simulation that they made of seeing the world and i started thinking about seeing the architecture kind of trying to see it through that lens through that that perspective rather than just a human perspective okay and that's kind of how it be, kind of took its form at least in terms of how how the process was made um, and then I wanted to remove a lot of the information because I wanted to talk about the fragility of, of this habitat destruction of, of these, these things that are made. Uh, they're not all, you know, these like a mud dauber. You can, you can get rid of their nest with a water hose. Yeah. It's sure. just, you know, it's, there's a fragility there. And I was also thinking about, about, you know, everybody, everybody loves their home. And even though we love our homes and we value our homes differently, these are still something's home. Right. But then there's, you know, there's a, there's a do, there's a complexity there of like, I don't want it on my house. Right. I don't want it in my backyard. Um, and so that, that kind of played into it. And then, so in working on the, on the collages, I, I chose to use, um, like the, this was made from photographs and mm-hmm. of books, uh, from books. And, uh, so I chose things that kind of had this human value as sort of a way to, Maybe another way to try to see this, this form with some through like the lens of something you value. So for what, like there's the, the green one, the, the, the leaf cutters, uh, ants, and that was, uh, was taken from these, uh, images of, uh, of golf courses. Right. <laughs> and I'm not a golfer, but you know, people love golf. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. Like, and their you know, grass. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. And then there's the, the golden chrysalis. So, you know, there's photographs of gold. That are all cut up and they're used in the, in the collage. And then, uh, for the, the, the pink chrysalis, there are, um, there are irises that were used. Okay. Like very, very valuable irises. And then, um, for the, the termite mound, um, it's all different browns and sort of different, uh, tones of, of taken from artworks, like fine artworks hmm. from the book. So kind of put that in there. It's like another little layer to kind of, play with or try to get, get that idea and enrich it. Okay. Yeah. And for people, of course, who haven't seen the show yet, these are very tiny little pieces of collage and they're huge works 
So, <laughs> so they took months and months and months to put together. Um, and they're beautiful. They're really beautiful. Oh, and I should mention that these were um, a bit of a collaboration with my lovely yes. wife. And yes. And Berman. Yes. Yes. Um, those are all the questions I have, but if you wanted to talk about anything else in the show or anything else that's top of mind. Well, a couple of things I was just going to mention that were informing this was just more research, but maybe I don't know how, how interesting this will be. And you might want, I don't know. <laughs> um, so one thing that, that I was asking myself early on is I was trying to find out like, where does this innate, uh, fear of insects come from? Like, what is that? Sure. Um, and I, I think I, I read in a book of many years ago about, um, when a snake moves in the grass, you know, there's a, there's a response, like this animal lizard brain response to that. And, um, this was a, a, from an old Carl Sagan book called Dragons of Eden. Um, and I think he rewrote that later called like Baraka's brain. I think that maybe that's not the same, but anyway, I think he rewrote it based on other research, but I remember reading this book and, and there's like, there's this response to seeing snakes move, um, cause snakes were huge killers of humans, like trying to like early, you know, becoming sure. bipedal and walking around and snakes were killers. They still are. But, um, and so you would like, you would learn to look for that sort of thing. And I, I kind of thought maybe it was something that kind of, that kind of came out of that, uh, sort of lizard brain Survival. response. Yeah. yeah. And so I was looking at different things like that. And I stumbled on this, this woman's work. Her name is Val Curtis and she's a disgustologist. <laughs> I mean, unfortunately she, she died a few years ago, so I would have loved to have written her a letter or, or like, sure. it's so great to have a conversation, assuming that she would talk to me about this, but, but reading, uh, reading what I can find about, about that was been really fascinating about like why we're disgusted of certain things. Um, and, uh, I guess she has a quote of saying disgust is our guardian. And it's sort of, I think that, that maybe it replies to, to bugs and insects in a weird way that, that, you know, they, they bugs a lot of times, insects will eat, um, decomposing matter and like these things that we are yeah. repulsive. Yeah. And there's also infestation, there's biting and rashes and parasitic infections and these different things. And, you know, I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast now is getting the heebie-jeebies, but, <laughs> but that's not my point. It's just, it's just, uh, it's fascinating because it's one of those things that, that everything, everybody shares in so different ways. So it's an ways. innate. I think it is. Yeah. And I think that there's something about that, at least in the West, because I've seen, I've seen some different uh, things about ants in Africa. And I remember watching this thing where there were some leafcutter ants and there was this guy in his house and he just, that's just the path they take. They just come through my house on the way. Yeah. I don't they don't them, stop. And that's, that's just, that's the culture. Sure. It. Whereas here they would be stomped into oblivion and, you know, gone. Right. Um, and there's, there's something interesting there about, hmm. about, about cultures with this as well. Okay. Um, anyway, I just, I wanted to mention that. Do you want to mention the cathedral? It's so awesome. Oh, thank you. Uh, so, all right. So, um, I've been, I've been looking at termite mounds for a number of years. Um, I read an article about how archaeologists were using the, the forms of some of these, uh, cathedral termites. I'll come back to that. But the, the, the top and way, if I remember correctly, the, the, it can't kind of came to a point at the top. And when they were looking at like natural systems of to using architecture to regulate thermal conditions. Sure. And the way the heat would hit the top, that, that point at the top, it would dissipate the heat down in a different way. And it would keep it, uh, warmer at the top and cooler at the bottom. 
and I guess it has to do with like heat over, over surface area or something like that. But, and so I was kind of fascinated by this being used as biomimicry in, in our architecture and dealing with that because, you know, we have issues of heat in here in Texas and climate change is, you know, it's just going to get worse. Mm-hmm. So I, I was looking at some termite mounds online and I found this guy's research where he had a termite mound in Australia, Australia, and there were, uh, there were cathedral termites. And I thought cathedral is a really interesting, I like that. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like this, it, it gives it value to some humans. Sure. And um, I thought that would be something to kind of play around with because there's cathedral glass. And there's this, arch- this rich architectural history with humans and that. And I was like, kind of similar to the, 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 the collages and that sort of like trying to, trying to imbue this value into it yes. in a way. Yes. And so I was able to get his 3D model and and from that I, I i was able to um i created a, a cnc like mock-up a foam and and then i was like i'm gonna learn how to do stained glass <laughs> and i went and i took some classes um from a local place here and and uh they, they were like and you've never done stained glass before like you don't want to start with something flat and simple and i was like no man let's just do it and so we just, you know, put it together and I had, I have a history of, of being a welder and working with steel. So right. I kind of understood in a way how to solder and I just went for it. And I'm really glad I did because yeah. it was great and it was really fun to learn that. I don't know if I'll ever use it again. I, maybe I will. Um, but, uh, it was really fun to, to make that, that, that piece. And then finally one day I pulled the foam out of it and I was able to look through it and see the glass and it was like, Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and then the, the, I worked with an engineer to come up with a light inside and when we went through, um, I had, I'd been studying how to use Arduinos and coding those. Their Arduinos are little microprocessors that you can load in, into and control things, but to how to make the lights work inside. And then that didn't quite have the oomph we needed. So, um, engineers started working on a different set of lights and kind of a back and forth. And, and then now we have this really great, great thing that has this, um, this nice roll, uh, brightness up and down. And, and I wanted to kind of the lighting initially, I wanted to kind of mimic something that termites do. And when the mound is under attack, some of the termites have a head that's sort of shaped like it looks like kind of like a mandrel or a hammer and they'll go over and they're bang their head against the wall. And it's, it's really fast, but what it does is it kind of radiates up and it becomes an alarm for the colony. And I think they go and grab the babies and move them to the vault or whatever they do. And they get ready to be under attack. And uh, so I wanted to try to mimic that in a way, but I didn't want to do it with light as fast as they would normally bang their head against the wall because I don't want to have people having seizures. At right. right. <laughs> but we sort of slowed it down and I, it, it, it's kind of this, it's nice and it's, for me, like when I see the light pulsing inside of it, it's inviting, but it's also, it's hypnotic and there's something kind of eerie about it to me. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think we should wrap up, huh? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for chatting with me. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Thanks so much. Um, everybody come to see, see the show. It's fantastic. And it opens, um, Saturday, March 4th. I want to thank Sean Smith for joining me on this podcast. His exhibition, Oma Tedium, will run through April 16th. I would also like to thank Scott David Gordon for producing the show and the Black Drum Set for letting us use her song, A Dangerous Drive. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.